Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Having trouble getting things done at work? You're not alone. Maybe in order to unlock amazing outcomes, it's time to stop looking up and down for answers and instead start looking across. What do we mean by that? The companies with the fastest speed to market tend to be the ones that look across the organization rather than up and down the hierarchy. Stay tuned to hear how Atlassian software like Confluence, Jira, and Loom can help maximize effective teamwork in your organization. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for the show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync, so even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account, so ambitious companies have the precision control and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. everyone. This is Pivot from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway. Scott, did you watch Obama's commencement speech? It felt like we had our president, any president who can give a speech without, you know, referring to Independence Day back. What did you think about that? Uh, I thought it was interesting that he's sort of uh, crossing the line that most presidents don't cross. And that is he is in his own Obama-esque way. Um, he's going after the president. And typically, yeah. former presidents have sort of a, you know, an unwritten pact with each other that they don't, they're not critical of previous presidents or administrations. Yeah. And he's clearly, when he says, you know, these people aren't even pretending that they're in charge, it's pretty clear who he is uh, talking about. But in general, I thought, I thought it was really I was really moved by the whole thing. Did you watch it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was great. It was a great speech. You know, it was funny because it was that Independence Day thing that they put Trump's hat on, which was so cheesy and ridiculous. And uh, I liked Independence Day. It's a movie I've seen a lot of times. Uh, it's uh, It was interesting. I was just, it was an interesting move. I, I, I think this idea of previous presidents, he's attacked Obama so drastically. I don't, I feel like gloves off is fine on this one because not just Obamagate, which is the most recent thing, but it's constant and persistent and incredibly disrespectful. You're not supposed to also insult previous presidents this way, but this is all that's happening. You know what I mean? So so saying we didn't do this before is not an excuse for anything at all anymore, but it was interesting that it went on all the networks. It was all over social media. It was very calculated and I thought very deft way of getting across that speech. I thought it was, you know, the same kind of stuff. I think the Trump campaign is quite good about getting messages out, not as sharp as they've been. Uh, Maybe I haven't seen the bowels of Facebook, but I'm talking about the sort of larger ones. And I thought it was rather clever. Um, And and, uh, it was such a contrast. It was such an interesting contrast, which I think was the point. Uh, of, of the thing, and it did. It did. I, I watched it all on social media, not on the networks, but the networks did broadcast it because you know they like they like a fight. You know, all those cable networks like a fight going on that they can then talk about endlessly. Um, but it was interesting. It was it was it was well done. It was a well done speech. I thought. He also it's just so striking that just how ridiculously old these people are. He looks younger. He's already been president yeah. for eight years and been out of office for four years, and he looks like their nephew. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, adopted, of course, but he looks like their nephew. <laughs> the other thing that was out this weekend, which we should discuss very slightly, was Facebook's uh, acquiring of Giphy for $400 million. This is yeah. their second big purchase in the U.S. since the U.S. shut down because of the pandemic. They also invested in an Indian internet provider, Geo. They did not buy it outright. They're not allowed to, I believe. Now seems to be a bold time to be acquiring a video library company and also this one. Uh, do you think it's going to be allowed? I, it's it's an interesting situation there. That's a, that's a company that's, that has never been bought. Um, and I, knew, I I met the founders once a while ago, and the Yahoo had been looking at them a million years ago. I'm sure Google had looked at them. Uh, they probably were in some bit of distress, but maybe not. It was it was an interesting move. Yeah, it's uh, first off, it feels a little bit weird because don't you think of Giphy? I think of Giphy as sort of in the same genre vein as Wikipedia, almost as if it's a yeah. public good. And I realize yeah. it isn't, but for some reason, it has that sort of. PBS Wikipedia feel about it, uh, almost as if it's common, you know, pub, a public source or common source or whatever you call it. Uh, what's interesting is I, I do think it'll probably go through because it's $400 million. And I think the majority of people who regulate these things probably don't really understand what the yeah. if Facebook is going to start getting kind of these uh, gift signals from all over the internet, which they'll use to understand. I mean, they could do a variety of things. They can anticipate news stories. If the New York Times is all of a sudden pulling gifts on, um, you know, Marguerite Vestier, they have a heads up that, okay, they're working on a story on Marguerite. Or, uh, th there's all kinds of signals they'll be able to get from all across the internet and different players now, which they'll mm -hmm. get very good at, at analyzing uh, to their own benefit. Um, you could also see that they might uh, start copying all sorts of uh, features or way that people handle images by examining how people use GIFs. So, like it's it's another example. They're you know going more and more vertical into content, which is interesting. But this is a different type of content, if you mm -hmm. will. It's not the the end you know it's not the end content. It's a it's a piece. It's a part of the recipe. But the whole thing just kind of makes you just go, okay. The whole thing just sort of makes you nervous. I don't. I'm uncomfortable when Facebook buys anything. How do you? Yeah. What do you think of this? I think that it might be looked at. I think it might be looked at. I think they'll have competitors complaining because they're embedded in so many places. They have so many partnerships with not just Facebook but Twitter and a bunch of others. And so you know, anything Facebook buys is going to be looked at. Um, and it's uh, you know they will have they will have so much. What I think it is, is they'll have so much information about other people's activities. Okay, this is just what the FTC was looking at in these smaller purchases where, where any of these big companies purchase something and then get enormous amounts of information from it. And this is where the real, they're not crimes, but this is where the real problems are in this space is them acquiring companies like Giphy. And I think it definitely will be scrutinized, which speaking of big tech getting bigger or maybe not, the DOJ is reportedly bringing antitrust charges to Google. I'm surprised Facebook is not involved in this, but this is the DOJ. Remember, they FTC and the DOJ split up the uh, investigations. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are both reporting that the Department of Justice, as well as the state's attorneys generals, could wage an antitrust suit as early as this summer. Both cases would be litigating Google's grip on the online advertising market. Right now, Google makes about roughly one-third of every dollar spent on internet advertising. If the lawsuit does happen, it will be the biggest antitrust suit the government ha has pursued since its settlement with Microsoft in the late 1990s and the first major move to break up the big four. Uh, 
Scott, what do you think about this? And I'm, you know, it's interesting you could do this without also doing Google, without doing Facebook, excuse me. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing here is that the order uh, going after Google first sort of intimates or somehow communicates that Google is the worst offender. So there is... It's the longest time offender, but go Yeah, but it, it says something. It communicates to the public that, oh, Google must be the worst. So I think timing around who goes first is actually important. But you covered the analogy here is mm -hmm. obviously the DOJ's uh, case against Microsoft in the 90s. I know you covered that. Give us a brief history yes. lesson. Well, it's not. It's it didn't actually end up with right. anything, right? I mean, it was a big noisy trial. Bill Gates made a mess of himself at the at the, the, the being deposed. I did he not have sex with that surrogate. woman. Oh no, wait, that was someone else. <laughs> no, that was a different else. one. That was a different yeah. one. He was he was in this. If you ever want to go see a really terrible deposition, go look at the Bill Gates deposition in this trial. Um, you know, there was Netscape was involved. Uh, uh, people from AOL were involved. All kinds of people about what they were doing. And in the end, it didn't. You know, it didn't, it slowed them down is what it did. And I think later different rulings had called into question some of the initial rulings. And I think it was more that it was Microsoft, it's the first time t this one tech company is scary for the rest of us mm -hmm. and has Im impact on it. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 or less or less years ago, you know, they had started to look at Google for its behavior and its wanting to take over the search market. There was some uh, some noise when it was trying to get the Yahoo search market, when that was a big deal, the, the percentage of the search market. And then that went away. And the Obama administration really declined to do anything about the growing power of Google. And so I think they sort of took a, took a, a didn't do anything. I don't know, there's a, there's a boxing term, but they just didn't, they didn't do anything at all. And uh, and then now we're here. And so to me, I don't know how you do this without doing the other, like, because they they both, they basically split up the advertising market. And this breakup drum, you've been beating for a long time. And so w why do one if you're not going to look at the whole system of these things? Does it undercut the case? I'm not a lawyer, uh, but it's a real, it's a real, it's, it's really is interesting. It may, they may have more ability to prove it. They worked with companies like Yelp and some others, which is, which have been cross purposes with Google for a long time. That's actually a really interesting point because I think if you were to try and tackle this, you're right. You need to understand the ecosystem and there would be, it would seem obvious synergy. I mean, a lot of this just comes down to, resources, and that is uh, the DOJ and the FTC yeah. decided to divide and conquer. They kind of split up the four and said, all right, you take these guys, we'll take these guys, because it's it's a resource issue. This is this is kind of the flare across the bow of the battleship saying, all right, we're about to enter a 10-year shooting war, because yeah. this will take, this could take 10 years, and we're talking yeah. about hundreds, if not thousands of lawyers on on either side. And so it which is a problem the 10 years by the way things change They so do and uh, and also to be fair typically when the government kicks off a DOJ trial it's usually the high water mark for the power of that company um you know about the time they start calling IBM in front of Congress is when IBM's power begins to wane so we'll see I don't think that's yeah. the case here what to your point though it seems as if there 20 to 30% of the research that you would do around competitive dynamics or anti-competitive behavior would overlap with Facebook's anti-competitive behavior. And I agree with you. I don't yeah. I, it seems to me like the initial 50% of their d diligence and research should be on the the market that is 70% Facebook and Google as opposed to just Google. Mm -hmm. So I don't I, right. I I agree with you. It seems to me that they would go after 
go after both. I also think it's just strange and uh, diminishes the threat, diminishes the threat that Facebook, um, Amazon, and to a lesser extent, Apple represent by announcing that that they're going after Google first. I think that's just unusual. Maybe there's a reason for it, but it definitely says to the public that Google is the biggest offender when you go after them first. It says that this is the this is the menace that we're most frightened of. They may be able. This is the one they may be able to prove better. I think that's the that's the issue. Um, so it, it, it's interesting that there that states attorney generals are also involved. Um, the, the, these com- these lawyers coordinate with each other, obviously. Um, and I think it's it, it will be around the online advertising business, and Google is the dominant mm-hmm. player in this regard. But you know, then you also, as you know, have have Amazon coming in here. I think they'll make that defense. Um, there's other big players. What's what's I think difficult um, is that is how much how many resources uh, Bill Barr has committed to this, and then so there's always with the Trump administration, what else is going on here, mm-hmm. right? What 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 political thing? Now Bill Barr is so tainted right now from a political point of view, it's hard to imagine there won't be some attacks in that direction towards him, and deservedly. Um, and and it will take them too long. I think that's one of the issues. They, Google and others have worn down these 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 litig- these these uh, regulators. Um, and I I wonder where the FTC will come out here. I guess I forget which ones they they might be looking at uh, Facebook. I think. Um, and and many people feel like the FTC didn't take enough aim at Facebook during that time. Um, there's also a competition. People don't realize it between the FTC and the DOJ, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they, who's going to get these cases? If you watch any legal drama with with regulators involved, they're always like, "No, I'll get this case. No, I'll take this case." And so, I, I think it, it, the, the advantage is still to the tech companies. But what's interesting is that it doesn't. It didn't slow them down. They, in turn, the coronavirus hasn't slowed them down, and these companies have been trying to go for redemption. Um, for a while, uh, for it, during this, using this period to do that, and 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 these cases will proceed as planned. I think is is interesting. And to, I, I think it's actually been effective. I think they have uh, a. It helps to have the distraction of an enemy that's even more frightening than them. And two, uh, my sense is that their behavior during this period has largely been seen as accretive to society, as opposed to everybody, you know, is worried that that they see it as an opportunity to spread more. Misinformation. Yep, agreed, agreed, agreed. One of the things that's interesting is the sort of the the, the that the Federal Trade Commission did not uh, declined to uh, prosecute Google back in 2013. This is the historical thing I was talking about, um, saying it didn't warrant it, even though there were companies like Yelp and others really pressing. And in this case, you know, a lot of big com- uh, big media companies like News Corp was very aggressive in this area. And according to Wall Street Journal, they had been contacted. I think. Contacted is a very loose term because I think a lot of these companies have been pressing, and they also, of course, face these issues in the Europe um, in in terms of of their of their market share and things like that. And I think it will be interesting to see their defense. That will be it's saying there's other big giants. Seem I would imagine that's their defense. Look, there's Facebook. Look, there's yeah. Amazon. Look, there's plenty of competition in the space. And I think it'll be. There will be considerable legal resources devoted to this, and I think it'll be hard for the government, especially uh, on its back heel uh, in this environment. And then, of course, everything is politicized at this point. Um, you know, you'll get you'll get some. What's interesting is how how protected Facebook has been given its 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 help of the Trump campaign that people perceive its help of the Trump campaign. One of the things that first struck me about just a 
uh, and how naive I was to the resource question was Senator Mark Warner invited me down to speak to him about big tech. And I went down there. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, of course, this is a very large and handsome man. That was the first thing I thought. Yeah. He's a big, handsome <laughs> oh man. God, he's just enormous. And he's very handsome. He's a yeah, handsome man. He's a big, man. handsome he's man. He's a handsome man. Um, yeah. And the okay. second thing, he was in there with his legislative aides who are all, you know, these overeducated 14-year-olds. And I yeah, brought it, they okay. said, well, what two things? He does. He does have a very eager yeah. well, they all staff. Do, right? Go ahead. They all do. And <laughs> they said, well, what would you do right away? And I'm like, you know, mandate mandate identity and take away the Content Decency yeah. Act and give them, you know, take away these shields, these liability shields. Communications decency. And both yeah. of these. Section 230. Both of these legislative aides, like, practically started having seizures. And they said, there's just no way we could take on those two things. I mean, they looked as if they had been working 18 hours yeah. a day as is, and they're like, they looked at they him, had. they said, Senator, there's no way we can even put out a press release saying we're looking at that because they knew that if they even got anywhere near those two issues, they'd be overwhelmed, that there would be a shock and awe response from the entities controlled by uh, Google. And they just look so kind of intimidated. Like, okay, you really want to yeah. poke well, they the bear be here? Guess what? Well, the bear's got a lot of lobbying right. money. So, you know, the bear is well-armed in terms of the – I think I have talked to DOJ people, high-ranking, and they're like, oh, God, you know, taking this on, including the the length of time tech changes yeah. and their inability to do anything. I think it'll be – it's really interesting. And, again, they're further stressed by the coronavirus issue. It'll 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 degenerate, and it'll, that's to Google's and Facebook's and Amazon's advantage. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back uh, to talk about Amazon making its way into retail – and also a friend of Pivot. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. The universal truth with our customers is they're all struggling to get stuff done. Our goal is how do we help them unleash the potential of their people, their teams, and their technology to actually get the right things done at the right time with the right people the right way. And when we do that, magical things truly happen. Don Price is Atlassian's work futurist. It's his job to help Atlassian customers imagine more effective ways to work. It's completely natural to focus on what you can control in your team. The problem is if, if that's all you do, you get pretty myopic. The best teams I'm working with, they really work on who are the people upstream and downstream that we need to work with. How do we get flow across the organization? How do we get value into the hands of our customers quickly? And sometimes achieving flow means that instead of asking who do I work for, it's asking, who do I work with? When you get team connection right, everyone benefits. The employee, the employer, and the customer, right? To get stuff done, the best organizations and teams right now are focusing on modern work. They're dreaming about the future, but they're dreaming about it by planting the seed to get the right things done right now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom enable teams to work effectively together to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Welcome back. Amazon is wasting no time in pushing into the struggling retail market. What a surprise. The company is teaming up with Vogue and the Council of Fashion Designers of America to create a new high fashion storefront called Common Threads, Vogue X Amazon Fashion. Okay. Uh, Amazon has billed it as an effort to help the retail industry, which has been floundering during the pandemic as storefronts close. But Amazon has had its sights on designer retail for some time. Back in December, in the before times, that's what we're going to refer to it now, Scott, as we talked to Joanna Coles about Amazon's plans in fashion. Here is a rewind. Clearly, Amazon wants to eat shops, right? It wants to finish off fashion. I do think, though, that fashion's resistance will be that fashion is frequently an emotional purchase, and it's hard to imagine a less emotional shopping environment than Amazon. Clearly, Amazon wants to eat the shops. It wants to finish off fashion. Naughty I am. We should absolutely right. keep that. That was very good. That was very good. Thank you very much. Anyway, uh, Scott, what do you think? Now is the time we can imagine Amazon becoming an emotional purchase platform. I have an emotional relationship with Amazon, I think, now. I think I, I feel weirdly grateful. I was ordering something last night, and I feel bad. It's like a bad relationship. I feel bad, and yet it's good. So uh, what? Yeah, but the emotion and the instinct you feel from Amazon is around your gut, and that is you feel it, it goes to survival, and that is if you go into your cave with a lot of food, you're going to be fine. If you don't go into your cave with enough food, you die the worst death that has taken more lives than any than any malady in history, and that's starvation. So you feel smarter, and it, it foots your uh, survival instinct. The instinct that luxury is supposed to connote is uh, one, an old instinct, and two, a newer one. And the first is that you want to be more attractive to the to the other sex or the same sex in your case. Hashtag hashtag sensitive. Uh, uh, anyways, I don't know where I'm going with that. But basically, the need to procreate is is a close second yeah. to survival. And our ability. Right. We're, we're having babies now. Okay, well, yeah, go but on, the go reason I'm the reason going. I'm going to buy a Ferrari is I want to pretend I'm younger and spread my seed to the four corners of the earth, and I think that increases my oh likelihood my of spreading my seed. And the reason why most women, other, did you just use seed? But go the ahead. The reason why most women, other than you, will spend eleven hundred dollars <laughs> on ergonomically impossible <laughs> shoes called Manolo Blahniks or Christian Louboutin is they want to signal to the opposite sex that they have longer legs, which means our offspring will be less prone to infection. And so this oh procreation, really? this need... It's just a shoe, Scott. This need, right, to, feel, this need to feel uh, uh, sexually attractive is immensely important. And Amazon, you just don't yes. feel very horny when you get onto Amazon. Whereas you walk into a Birkin store, you walk into a Ferrari dealership, you're like, it's go time. It's time for us to procreate. I never feel that way. In the other thing that... The, the newer instinct that luxury has been able to connote because over the last several hundred years, the only places you found really beautiful, I mean, really artisanal works was in places of worship where God supposedly hung out. So it's instinctive that when mm -hmm. you see the slope of the back of a 911 or the mesh on a Bottega Veneta bag, you, you get stilled and you feel as if you're in the presence of something holy. You feel as if you're in the presence of well, God. Can, have people changed? Have people changed? Because no. now, like, the person providing them food into the cave no, is Amazon. Because it puts, like, or, and I don't mean food. It's, I need to have my It puts blank, to utilitarian. You, it puts to your the front of your brain as opposed to the rear of your brain. It puts to smart. Okay, so how does it get in it, here? You know, does it buy Condé Nast? What if it Well, it also Condé represents desperation. Anna Winter is accessorizing her analog outfit with a pair of digital earrings by saying, we're partnering with Amazon. And it yeah, shows that yeah, they've got, they've had I mean, Condé Nast yeah. is really 
is really fallen far fast. Whereas a company like Hearst that was big in print has diversified into data businesses and is probably as strong as they've ever been. Condé Nast, although the family owns a bunch of cable companies and that they get billions from, uh-huh. the print properties have just been just gone from bad to worse, right? They they've had a very yeah. difficult time figuring out anything, any any sort of way out. And in, in a lot of it's not their fault. They still make the best, some of the best print properties, but what they should have done, they should have sold Vogue five years ago to some Gulf billionaire who wanted to go to Vogue parties. But this is... So what do they do? Would they sell to Amazon? Is that the way in for Amazon is to buy something? Buy or just Nest? I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I think a better just... a better partner would be someone like a what Pinterest. What would they buy? Um, they didn't buy Neiman Marcus. Remember, there was that rumor. Should they, should, should, Am- what should Amazon be looking at if they wanted to get... Besides buying the most expensive house in Los Angeles or a big house here, what should what should Amazon do if it wanted to be in the fashion? Oh, business? it should. Uh, or does it does it want to be? Yeah, in the I think it does because so one of the key dimensions of profitable e-commerce is value to weight ratio, and some of the best ratios in the world of commerce as it relates to fulfillment to the cost of fulfillment relative to the cost of the pro, uh, product, specifically the margin, is that hundred and twenty dollar um, two ounce bottle of La Mer or right. that. $1,100 Pucci dress that weighs 15 ounces. So this is absolutely an enormous opportunity for e-commerce, but they have been, this is one of the areas they have been really, really unsuccessful. They had Amazon beauty shops. Not so the gangster acquisition for them in terms of value Ooh, would be- Can't wait. Oh, 100% what? would be Nordstrom. They can pick up Nordstrom, Nordstrom for- That was a rumor too, Seattle, Seattle That's right, base. they know each other. And now it's, uh, Nordstrom has outstanding operations and management. They are very, very, I mean, everybody assumes that everyone that works at department stores are idiots, they're not. Nordstrom and- No, Nordstrom was always They're very, very yes. good. They have a fantastic e-commerce, they're very innovative. Struggled though, well, struggled, the, had some struggles. It's like being the best buggy whip manufacturer. It's just gonna be a tough place to be <laughs> right now. And but they're yeah. very strong, and they would immediately Nordstrom. they would immediately have access to all the brands that you populate your high end beauty cabinet with, and your and what's in the most fashionable closets in the world. So you would ah, you would inherit those relationships. You'd inherit, unfortunately, you'd inherit bad real estate. I don't think they want to be the anchor in a bunch of bad malls. But it would seem yeah. if they really wanted to get into luxury or fashion, I don't think they'd go to go after a media property that's dying. I think they'd go after. A company that has all the relationships with the beauty and luxury. Why not? Around. Why not have gone after Neiman Marcus when it was? Because Neiman Marcus has a really shitty cap table. It's a marginal business with just a terrible cap structure. As too many private equity guys have loaded it up with debt, so they would just be buying a company that they would be sort of bailing out. And what do you get with Neiman Marcus? Yeah. You get I don't know. It just Neiman Marcus. Yeah, Nordstrom's. Neiman Marcus doesn't have half. The operating mojo as as a Nordstrom. Nordstrom is an outstanding company. Uh, All right, oh, I like this. Neiman Marcus is Neiman Marcus is a trivia question from the eighties. All right, likelihood. Likelihood is well, it hasn't happened. I thought this was going to happen a couple of years ago. And, yeah, yeah. And they got to know each other. They got to play golf at the same Seattle, you know, golf no club golf. or whatever. They don't play golf. They go is that kayaking. What they do up there? But go ahead. I don't know. I don't ever go to Seattle. Yeah. I used to date someone yeah. there. But Seattle. I think Seattle's actually one of the most overrated cities. He's in not in Seattle anymore. He's like flying all over the place. Ever world. since but Kurt he, Cobain you know, died, Seattle, you have nothing for me. <laughs> no, I like Seattle. Totally overrated. Anyway, all right, all right. Very good. I like, like LA that. With I like rain. that idea. That's really interesting. Wow, we're gonna have to try. We have to have Joanna Coles back on, and so she can do her real, actual, uh, sexy British accent and 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 talk about this. This is really interesting. 
Very interesting, Scott, as usual. But now we're going to move on to a totally different mm-hmm. direction moving forward. We're, we're going to talk about internet conspiracies, more importantly, where they come from and how to stop them. We have with us Phil Howard. I just did a long uh, podcast, Rico Decode podcast with him and Emily Bell from Columbia. He is, the, he is from the Oxford Internet Institute. He is the author of the new book called Lie Machines, How to Save Democracy from Troll Armies, Deceitful Robots, Junk News Operations, and Political Operatives. Uh, Phil, welcome to Pivot. Thank you for coming. And you and I just recently had a long talk. Um, so let's go right into it. What are some of the biggest stories of misinformation on the internet right now? If you could do sort of a, a, a take us through pandemic or the, the concept. We talked about a number of really uh, distur- and you guys track this at the Oxford Internet Institute. That's right. We track it on a weekly basis. And, and I would say the, the misinformation of the week is around Obama Gate, whatever that may or may not be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly around the, um, the r- rumor that COVID was created in a lab. And uh, then it's, it's often also pegged to immigrants and migrants bringing in COVID or uh, making, us, making us all suffer in some, some way. And so when you talked about this idea, they, they, these different stories, they go up and down, correct? They, they sort of rise and fall. There was yeah. one you were talking about that if you took the flu vaccine, mm-hmm. um, you are more susceptible to COVID, correct? Right. Or, or it's, and that, that runs into the anti-vaxxers at the same time. Absolutely. They're the source for this. And in fact, that rumor is, is sort of evergreen in that uh, whenever there's a new medical crisis um, that seems to be connected to a mysterious disease, uh, the anti-vax claim is that if you were inoculated as a kid at some point, you're either more susceptible or uh, you're going to suffer if you take another vaccine. It's, uh, it's a sort of constant refrain. And Phil, isn't there, it seems like propaganda throughout history has been required more creativity on the part. If it was a foreign entity trying to damage a country, it's, they had to come up with a narrative and a story and then, and then figure out a way to plant it, promote it. Now it seems like all you need is a credit card because we have so much batshit crazy internally that we just find the most divisive incendiary statements from, I don't know, our president, and then they just, with a credit card, just pour fuel on it. Haven't, I mean, aren't we the problem? I, I think you're right. Your instinct is right in that it, there are dozens and dozens of people who will spend their all their own money to put together or slap together a website and uh, launch an automated campaign, a bot-driven campaign to push some messages around. You know, one of the most important forces all, in all this is a, a homegrown misinformation lab based in Montreal, called a Global Research Initiative, something like that. And uh, long before Breitbart, this this was an outlet for conspiracy theories and extremist white supremacist content. Uh, and it's a it's a small shop of a, a guy and uh, one or two volunteers putting out this stuff. I refuse to and believe about- anyone in Canada does, does anything <laughs> not nice. <laughs> they do, but it does. It does from big state actors, right? Phil, so talk about sort of the the way it move, way, the way these these things move through the system. Well, that's certainly where it goes to scale, right? We've we've just worked out that the Chinese can reach a billion social media accounts uh, in English when they push uh, when they push their their messaging, and usually what foreign governments will do is uh, rather than planting a clearly fake story, they'll turn some fake story that was generated domestically into a question. Uh, so, was the coronavirus generated in a lab? Question mark, uh, and that that becomes the RT story, or that becomes the CGTN headline, uh, except that they can reach uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of social media users 
whereas these small operations that are locally based, uh, they reach you know tens of thousands. And and the point being for a, chi- a, co- a country like China or Russia, do they have differing uh, goals that they're trying to pull off, or is it similar? Well, uh, China is is very interested. China wants to make sure we do not refer to this as the Wuhan virus, and mm-hmm. they want to make sure that we do not retaliate in, with trade in any way. Uh, for the Russian goals are a little bit more. Um, I mean, they're much more tied to undermining trust in our public institutions and in our our elections, right? In mm-hmm. in the way we hold elections. And what about domestic uh, actors? Well, uh, that gets even harder to speculate on. I mean, most of this activity is on the far right. It's not really on the far left. Once in a while, there's there's a, a group on the far left that does this, but it's usually ultra conservatives that spend big money on these things. And they're, I mean, for the most part, they're about supporting. Uh, big money. Uh, they're about supporting Republican candidates or about undermining the role of government in public life. And uh, we always talk about the threat to us. Are we good at this? Are, are we doing the same thing to the other guys? I don't think so. Uh, I think the other guys um, are much more likely to spend money in ways that uh, violate everybody's privacy norms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and launch campaigns that are uh, that are simply fu- full of made up information. There's also a strange, the strange subgroup of people who are just grifters, right? They just want to make some money out of this, uh, mm-hmm. generate a, a documentary, and drive some clicks through to their website. And they don't have actually any strong ideology, ideological beliefs. Uh, they just want to keep the uh, servers running and make a little money out of these kinds of things. Is, is that what something like Plandemic is, or is that really from people's feelings? Like, talk about that particular movie and how it's well, gone around. Plandemic's an interesting phenomenon. I I haven't interviewed them. I don't know what their motivations are, but I would say that they're doing they're very successful at driving traffic, right? And any talk of a sequel, a sequel, or a follow on movie, or a deeper explanation, um, or a book, right? A book contract, all that stuff is is the follow on money making activity that. That seems to be an important part of the reason to produce the, this junk. Uh huh. And how is it different from, say, everyday news information that may be disputed, like the watching Fox News versus an MSNBC and misinformation itself? What's the okay. difference between misinformation and disinformation? So I, I'm going to touch that by separating out Fox News. The, the the main difference though is is that most is that the major news organizations do fact checking and have a professional a culture of professional journalism norms. And we don't always agree with them. They're not always applied consistently. Sometimes the fact checking doesn't work. But on the whole, for the most part, most stories get a lot of vetting. And if an editor doesn't like something in the story, they'll spike the story or um, you know, things will get edited until, until they're closer to truths. Um, misinformation does not have any of that oversight. It's um, their creative essays, their commentary, they're what you and I might see as commentary essays using the New York Times font or, or put on a website with the BBC colors. Mm-hmm. Um, as for Fox, I, they are ostensibly a commentary outlet. I don't know what their fact-checking processes are, but I'd be surprised if they were as rigorous as um, other news organizations. And what can we do? What, what, yeah, what can the platforms uh, do? Okay, well, there's two questions. This, the what we can do question uh, is um, not forward stuff that we haven't checked out ourselves. Uh, try to engage with the friends and relatives who do send junk. 
mm-hmm. um, try to consume stuff about COVID. You know, when you say engage, you like threaten to daily. put in a home, that kind of thing. When you say engage, <laughs> threaten, threaten, threaten to lock away. No, uh, you know, try to try your best to have a civil conversation right. and ask them to check their sources. Right. <laughs> um, I don't. Yeah, I, I, the threats won't work. So the worst, the worst possible situation is if Democrats and Republicans all unfriend each other, mm-hmm. right? And if family members really do delink, uh, break social media ties, and never hear from each other, that. That would make things much, much worse. All right. What about the platforms themselves? You had talked about the idea that the the advertising, there was a lot of heat around political advertising and the lies that Facebook allows versus, and you thought that was not as important as something, as content itself. As the content. Yeah. When we did our work with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, we found that the Russians had largely moved on to Instagram. It was no longer... Um, we were doing this work in 2018, uh, mm-hmm. and so we, we found the Russians had moved off of Facebook and Twitter and were mostly on Instagram. And mm-hmm. then we found that overall uh, ads paid for in rubles were a fairly small amount of the content that was placed. It was, it's, the organic, it's the organic photos and text written by fake, fake accounts. Uh, over the course of months uh, by by people who are maintaining 10 20 30 different accounts this is the stuff that reaches the most the most so voters. how do we stop how do they stop that should they stop that they don't want they don't want to at all i think well i would say that uh, the, the business model certainly thrives on having exciting engaging content uh, on the platform i also think social media firms social media platforms like facebook are designed to uh, bring out the controversy to get the sensational stories up and out in front of us so that we stay on the platform. They're not designed to promote consensus or to, to figure out which stories are being widely read by credible stories, sources and, and you know push those into your feed. That's, that's not what these platforms are designed to do. So how have they done going into this election? The thing you're most worried about are these content farms that are making these stories that seem credible, like you said, using New York Times font or people thinking it's real information. And if you had to pick two or three of the worst stories right now, what would they be? Well, certainly the worst is Obama because it's been created uh, as an empty shell that is allowing several different kinds of actors to put whatever they want into into it. And um, I think what makes one of these things successful is when an outlet like Fox will pick it up and turn it into a broadcast story, uh, mm-hmm. because that creates links, URLs, um, that can then go into another round of tweets or into another round of uh, YouTube videos. So, uh, you know, I think I think the firms have actually been pretty constructive around COVID misinformation. Right, um, they have. The evidence suggests they're, they're um, clamping down in creative ways. I don't know that they're going to show that same sense of responsibility when it comes to November 2020. Could they? They claim that the problem is just too big. They throw their arms up and say, as much as we'd like to, or they don't want to. Uh, we can't, that it's physically impossible. Or we shouldn't. Uh, no, I, I don't think that's right. It's not physically possible. They could do a much better job sharing data. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, they share data with journalists and you know independent researchers that is um, years out of date. Uh, with so many constraints that none of us can actually play with it and figure out what's going on. Um, the, they have a real-time, Facebook has a real-time ad library that um, could be useful to, to watch if we, if we want to sort of watch things closely in, in October and November. But no, the, the, there are more things. And one of the real problems um, with social media firms is when they 
experiment with something constructive in Canada, but then don't run it in the US. Or they play with a, a platform feature in Australia and find that it works well, but then they decide not to run it run it in a, another democracy. And so getting all the democracies sort of up to the same level um, would would be something that they should they should do. Will they? I don't think so. Not without government response. Not without government um, nudges. I mean, it's taken. It took a judicial inquiry, a Senate inquiry, uh, four years of bad press, constant pressure from journalists and academics saying there's uh, you know misinformation on the platform, and and that's barely got a, a small number of uh, tweaks, I would say, to the platform to try to improve the level of information that's available. There's, they're showing they're starting to spend more money on these kinds of things, but the United States is. 200, 250 million voters. Uh, that's a big population to help. And I haven't seen a comprehensive help package from the social media firms. All right, Phil, thank you so much for coming on. Phil's book is called Lie Machines, How to Save Democracy from Troll Armies, Deceitful Robots, Junk News Operations, and Political Operative. I think you've got that covered. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming Thanks, on Phil. Pivot. So, Kara, I have conflicting emotions after that interview. I found what he was yeah. saying what? exceptionally alarming, Reasonable. but the way he says it is so calming. He's very yeah, he's guy. A it's calm like, guy. oh, hi, Scott. Hey, sweetheart, we're here to take you to the gas chamber. <laughs> I mean, that guy's so calm. He's no, so calm. He is calm. He is calm. He looks at a dreck all day long and tries to figure out where it comes from, essentially. Anyway, Scott, yeah. one more quick break. Okay. We'll be back for wins and fails. Okay, Scott, we're back. What are your wins and fails this week? What are they? Well, my fail is just the ad-supported industrial complex and how incredibly redundant and non-creative they are. They're all here for us. Yeah. They all need to tell us that we're in this together, and then they yeah, all I sent you that video. <laughs> yeah, and then they show some guy. We're here to help. We're some here guy to help. or gal and an essential worker that they're calling a hero. Although it has been a huge source of comfort for me when, so for example, when my when my son isn't doing well and really struggling, I just yell out, Hyundai, because Hyundai is here for me, Kara. They're here for me. <laughs> Hyundai, Hyundai, where are you, Hyundai? Is you um, like the little tinkling music. That was, I, I sent Scott a video of all of them put together. I think Fast Company put it together, but yeah, it was like tinkling music. And then the, later the music gets more tinkly at the end. Oh, and God, we're here to help. Awful. We're in this together. Just what else? stop it. All these brands. Home, I think home, totally home, lost. family, family, family. And cetera, also, you want to talk about the ad industrial complex just getting uh, all these, the biggest advertisers in the world are all trying to get out of their commitments. Yeah. This is, yeah. it's really, um, I mean, you could actually see, and this impacts us, I did a podcast, or I had Sam Harris on my other podcast, and by the way, that guy is very thoughtful, Sam Harris. Yeah. That guy's yes, like crazy he, thoughtful. Yes. Him and Fareed Zakaria are my new like brain all boners. Right. Those guys right. are like okay. incredibly right. smart. Okay. Okay. Anyways, he's doing this paid thing. I wonder if, I wonder if and when podcasts are finally going to go paid because even the people who listen to us is funny and as wonderful Let's as our advertisers are, people are just getting sick of it. They're yeah. just sick of it. Yeah. That's interesting. Anyways, okay. the ad-supported right. industrial complex and the ridiculously lame ads, right. it's claiming right. that okay. they're here for us. We're Family. Yeah. Hope. We're in this together, Carol. We're in this together. Buy our ketchup. We're in this together, <laughs> goddammit. They're not going to let you down. Yeah, who's your loser? You do you have a loser? 
Uh, so many losers, so many mm-hmm. losers. I still think these openings are, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel like there's, like, as usual in this country, there's no plan. We're just sort of, like, winging it. It's sort mm-hmm. of winging it. And we then we eat wings while we're doing it. Um, You know, that's the part of it I like about the United States is winging it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I That's one part. In this case, these openings, like, I was thinking, like, New Orleans, I want to go out. I'm trying to think of what I need to do in June or July to go somewhere, not here where I am. And I like, I'm in a very comfortable place. But, uh, but like, when they, there's a story about New Orleans opening. I just, I, I, would I go to New Orleans right now? I don't think I would go to New Orleans right mm-hmm. now. And I don't, and I like New Orleans, by the way. Um, and so, you know, everything is, people have, have the same feeling. They're like, uh, uh, and I wonder when that goes away. So I think um, it's just, I want them to have more thoughtful, like, like is there a temperature taker there or something? Are there rules? Is there a place where people don't, like, I just feel like no, nobody's in charge here, that kind of thing. And that's, that that's you know, and I and I, I think we were inundated with information, but have, n- don't know what to do. That's what I would, that's. Well, that's, my, my new Yoda, Fareed Zakaria, had some fantastic information. That is the only program in the world other than Killing Eve that I stop and I re, I, I go back and I do it for different reasons. I do it on Killing Eve because the set design is so unconscious and beautiful and the people mm-hmm. in it are so beautiful. I yeah. just love watching the fashion and the set design and the beautiful, I mean, that, that show's incredible. Anyways, the, with with Farid, I rewind it because he's just such a clear blue flame thinker, and I like to take his ideas as my own and then spread them across the world. But <laughs> he had some really interesting data, and that is if you make over $100,000 a year, uh, there's a 60% likelihood you can work from home, and there's only a 1 in 10 chance you've been laid off. If you make less than $40,000 a year, uh, only about uh, 10% of you can work from home, and almost 40% have been laid off. So the the kind of the kind of we're reopening to early movement to be clear it is largely science based and you have a lot of epidemiologists mm-hmm. including Dr. Fauci saying we have to be very thoughtful i.e. we're reopening too fast but the fuel behind it is what I'll call this graduate education class that quite frankly hasn't been hurt that badly and them being at home just isn't that bad so there's a different sense of urgency and perspective and you have to empathize with people who are worried about putting food on the table because we have right. in this Joey bag of donuts fucked up culture we called America where we've put 50% of our population in the world's wealthiest country at risk such that they can't afford to not have a paycheck for 30 days their attitude is, well, okay, it's easy for the ruling class that disproportionately controls the economy, culture, and government to talk about the need to stay home when you're just fine, but we're not. It's an entirely different risk profile. The calculus is entirely different for one group of people versus the other. And the people who, quote unquote, control the media, control the government, tend to be the ones that are just fine yeah. sheltering from place or sheltering yeah. in place. Yeah. All right. What about you? When? Oh, my win. Um, I'm, I'm I'm just fascinated. I don't know if you call it a win, but so I'm into this notion of when rivers reverse direction. It happened slowly but surely geologically for a bunch of reasons in the Amazon. The Amazon actually changed direction. And then the Mississippi River actually changed direction briefly after a hurricane. But I've been thinking a lot about, okay, if COVID-19 is an accelerant as opposed to a change agent, what parts of the economy do the rivers actually reverse? And the mm-hmm. two things I'm spending a ton of time thinking about. Huh. Um, Reversal is, of rivers. Not one I would pick for Scott Galloway, but go ahead. Well, that's sort of a, that's my pedantic way of saying when trends not only stop, but they reverse. And I mm-hmm. think there's two really interesting river, river reversals here. And that is, 
I'm convinced we talked a little bit about this last week, the public schools might have an absolute sea change. And that is- I'm thinking of it. If you think about, yep. I was thinking, okay, what is the value? You know, I'm I'm public schools all the way through graduate school. I talk a big game, and then I have kids, and of course, they're in private school because I can afford it. And you 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 have your you have your intellectual t- talk track, and then when your kid comes ready for school, you're like, what's the best school? And it used and it's now almost always a private school. And if you can afford it, boom, they're in a private school, and it creates this downward spiral where you not only take money out of the hands of public school system, but you you take out the most important resource and that is parent engagement, right? Because a lot of the parents now in public schools are single parents, they don't have the time or the luxury to be as engaged as they would like in their kids' school. So it's been this downward spiral and this, this casting, continued casting and segmentation of our society. But could you have a reversal in a 30, 40 year trend because one of the benefits, yeah. and we don't talk about it I as like parents. It. I like it, yeah. But one of the things that justifies 10 to $20,000 of that 54,000 Fieldstone um, or Grace Church tuition is, is that you get to hang out with other people like you who are more impressive than you called parents on the weekends. Yeah. And Zoom classes do away with that. You get parent, you get uh, teacher to kid ratio of eight to one as opposed to twenty three or thirty to one. You, that doesn't matter on Zoom. So it's really interesting. If all of a sudden the points of differentiation get shaved off or sanded down around private school, and there's not that much difference between public Zoom classes and Zoom classes classes sponsored by private schools, you could say this. You could see this extraordinary yeah. reversal I, of rivers from. I, Yep. The white flight to private schools back to public schools. And quite frankly, it could it could inspire like and catalyze this wonderful upward spiral after the initial overrun of resources of public schools. So I'm actually public hopeful right. that public oh, schools K like through that. 12 might get a shot in the arm. And the other thing is just- I like the idea. Migration flows out of cities. I just, we have been, oh, culture, creativity, that. and money yeah. have all been migrating into cities for the last super cities in the last and 30 that was or 40 the trend. years. That's been the trend. That's Could the trend. all of a sudden that river reverse? I mean, I- I and, think people get tired of the, you know, I have a lot of friends who are, there was a story in the New York Times this weekend about people like where they're going, the zip codes, like yourselves. Yep, yep. Uh, and I do- I agree. I've been in the city the whole time. I haven't abandoned the city. I'm in D.C. now. I would have been in San Francisco or New York. Um, let me just say, for all you people that leave, I'm going. I like my grass. I can't believe I don't live here in this small town. Uh, they're not going to last long. I'm sorry. There's something so magical about cities, and yeah. I'm a city person. And I, I they're, they're like trying to convince me too much that it's better elsewhere, uh, you know, whether they're up in a small Connecticut town or uh, Vermont or wherever they are. You know, I like Vermont and I like people, people who live there should like living there. But I think there's something wonderful about cities. It throws people together in ways that they aren't used to. It's, I just, I, I get it. I get why you wouldn't want to be here for this, but when it all goes back, you're going to want the, the frisson of a city. I'm just going to, all right. I a hundred percent agree. But again, I'm, I'm, it might be, there might be a second order effect in that. It, you won't see an exodus of people, who live in cities, you'll see an mm-hmm. exodus of people who work in cities. And what I mean, mean, mean by that is the guy or the gal, the the investment banker or the lawyer that live in Short Hills or New Jersey or Greenwich, Connecticut, that have to be near Manhattan uh, because they work there. And now their company has said, you can work from anywhere and they can increase dramatically their quality of life by moving to to Raleigh or to Delray Beach, Florida, where they can all of a sudden say, okay, if I can work from anywhere, I'm going to where there's lower taxes, more sunshine, and I can buy a house near the beach for the same amount of money I have to buy in this you know, mediocre neighborhood 
in New Jersey. So there's going to be a migration, I think, of the people who have to work in the city but don't live there. But folks like you and me that uh, are blessed enough to have the opportunity to to live in the city itself, I agree. But it, I think it's the near kind of the, the, right, the okay. near right, near right. city okay, suburbs that's that are going to just get killed. River reversal of rivers is Scott's positive. Here's my positive. Uh, I like that Billions is back, which I'm very happy. Have about. Have you been watching that? You like it? Yes, I always like it. It makes me feel like the before times. I'm like, oh, it's Axe fucking up, whatever. Right, so, right. You know, and there, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of porn, rich porn, like they're flying to like some one of those internet conferences. Yeah, it's like Succession. It's New York porn. Yeah, they're like jumping out. They're doing whatever they're. Like, they're shaman. They're going to shamans this time. But I like it. That's not what it is. It's my son, Louis Swisher, is on the podcast, uh, Recode Decode podcast. And you know what? My son is freaking brilliant. He's so smart. He's so reasonable. I am very pleased with He turned 18 this week. Outside. I have raised a fine man. Good for you. Any lady who gets to marry him is a lucky lady. He's a great kid. And he was, if you listen to him on the podcast, I'm so proud of him. He's so, he's just a, He's just great. This, I, and so you can listen to. I have both. I have two tremendous sons, but I'm going to focus on Louis because this is his birthday this weekend. I have to say, if you want to hear the smartest kid, uh, who's so much, he's so much. He's every part of me that's good, and that's what I like about him. That's nice. It's a nice yeah. thing to say. Yeah, that's my happiness. I want. What makes you happy this week? I, I my kids make me really happy this week. What makes me happy? Um, you know, it's. I find myself checking when I say this, but. Uh, I this whole sheltering in place thing. I'm blessed. Mm-hmm. I have a nice place to live. I'm not economically yeah, you do. strained. I saw some photos. It looks nice. Uh, I like my. You know, I mostly like my family. Mostly, uh, and uh, like I'm. I'm really taking stock of <laughs> mostly. <laughs> Would you please be nice to your nice family? Your family looks lovely. Let Look, me just say, family. Like those. Are, these are people you otherwise wouldn't hang out with. That's the definition of family. Um, but look, I'm, 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 you know, all of it. I, I'm really t- trying to take stock of my blessings. I'm asking, I've been thinking a lot about my, well, I'm pimping my TV show, but I got my ratings back and 80% of our viewers are men. And we have one of the youngest viewerships oh. of, of, in cable television right now. And I thought, yeah. what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish with young men? And yeah. I think I've decided I want, I want, you, as in the viewer, to be a better man. I think young men relative oh, to every like other Jordan demographic Peterson. group. You're like are, a nicer version of Jordan Peterson. Yeah, but it, it, relative to every other group, younger men are failing and falling yeah. behind more than any other group. And I was thinking that this pandemic, and I've talked a little bit about this, offers a huge opportunity for men to break out of this cartoon of being masculine and quiet and not expressing your emotions and to really take stock of your relationships with your you know, the first one, I, I think of three questions I present to young men, because they don't want to talk yeah. about career or Bitcoin. I'm like, no, those are the wrong questions, Not the wrong Bitcoin. topics. The three questions you got to ask them. yourself are, one, do you have the relationship with your parents and your siblings that you would want? And if not, do you need to kind of put the scorecard and the bullshit aside and be kind of the man that your parents hoped you would be and your kids think you are and express real grace and generosity oh, and start repairing and strengthening relationships? I like it. I Scott is prim- Phil Donahue. You are a profound Phil opportunity around that the current stuff. age. Anyone who needs to look that up, look up Phil And Donahue. it's a time for young men. It's a time for young men who a lot of whom are boys to pivot to being a man and start taking yeah. care of their parents, start expressing yeah. affection and appreciation for their spouses and their partners, start reaching out to friends. 
friends start. Yep. This is a big opportunity we're for young men. As usual, we're on the same magazines. Well, I have a really wonderful young man. He's yep. now a man. He's now a man. And there you go. I, I'm, I'm very proud of him. Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, we should we should start a cult of some kind of raising young men. I'm in. As long as I'm the cult leader that gets to sleep with everyone, I'm in. <laughs> no, no, I'm no, in. you've just ruined it. Oh, I'm going to, that's enough. That's enough. Come We're to the dog. No, no. Go, reach new spiritual heights. No, 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 no. Anyway, Ugh. don't forget if you have a story in the news you're curious about, do not join Scott's Cult and want to hear our opinion Nikes on- Nike's and cyanide. <laughs> Uh, no, don't, and we're there now. Okay, email us at pivot at foxmedia.com. Do not write Scott in any way if you want to join his cult to be featured on the show. Scott, read us out, please. Today's episode was produced by Rebecca Sinanis. Our executive producer is Erica Anderson. And special thanks to Drew Burrows and Rebecca Castro. If you like what you heard, please download or subscribe. Join us later in the week when we'll be making predictions and talking all things tech and business. Have a wonderful week, especially it's great weather everywhere. It just go out and adore and marvel at what this world is like. And I am not an environmentalist with a little less carbon and a little less nitrous, whatever the fuck they call it in the air. And just appreciate Mother Earth or Father Earth. What a wonderful time to be alive. Kara, take care. Have a, have a good rest of the week. Thanks. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. What do you think of when you hear the word flow? How about a smooth river of collaboration culminating in a shared ocean of positive outcomes across your organization? Atlassian software like Loom, Confluence, and Jira can help you achieve maximum flow across your teams by enabling fast and easy communication and connection no matter what time zone they're in. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unlock flow across your teams at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 